roads, chaos, spring break on the beach declared an emergency. Quite frankly, I'm concerned that the behavior is getting, uh, it's getting a little bit more for uh, us to be able to handle. What do you say to voters? We are alleging that November's Florida Senate District 37 election involved crime. The disgraced senator, the shill candidate, criminal charges. You would think a no-brainer that a new election would be held. Demands for a resignation, a revote, and closing campaign finance loopholes. We need to stop incentivizing people to come. Uh, we need to restore order to our border. Border surge, desperation, and decisions. A first-hand report. Relational policing. It's about transparency, it's about respect, and it's about accountability. An outsider is in, Miami's new police chief. On the hot seat, Chief Art Acevedo Skyping from Houston. All big stories of the week, all this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glennon Milberg, and we begin with a new state of emergency, this time spring break on the beach. <laughs> Night after night, we have seen big, unruly crowds on South Beach engaging in sporadic violence and committing crimes. Despite a large police presence, but the police have been pretty much overwhelmed by this rowdy crowd of spring breakers who have thrown out all their inhibitions and respect for the law. It is out the window. So Miami Beach leaders yesterday afternoon took action, imposing an 8 p.m. curfew on the entertainment district and closing the causeways to the city to all but residents, hotel guests and workers. Let's get right to Miami Beach Police Chief Richard Clemens, who is with us live this morning after a long night. Boy, Chief, we sure do appreciate you being with us today. Good morning, Michael Glennon, and thank you for asking me to be on. Chief, we are so glad you are with us. So give us a report. I mean, it was, as we said, only four o'clock yesterday afternoon that the curfew was announced. Uh, and we have shown video here on Local 10 News this morning showing a big crowd out on South Beach on Ocean Drive in the vicinity of 9 p.m. So overall, how did the curfew go? The curfew went well. Uh, we obviously, with the, the late notification, expected there to be uh, some residuals, uh, meaning people that had not heard that the curfew was in place. Uh, again, at 9 o'clock, we started actively moving in and throughout the, uh, the entertainment district, uh, and people started gradually moving out of there and back to their, either their hotels or to their Airbnbs. Chief, you've been with the department way longer than you've been chief. I know you're pretty much your whole career. Um, the spring break is not new. Spring break on South Beach has been going on year after year after year. What is different about this year that all of a sudden there are these unprecedented moves to sort of crack down? What, what's happened? I think that, uh, again, this is a combination of COVID uh, and, and also um, really for the most part, what we're dealing with in law enforcement as a um, um, the, the backlash from, from last summer and then the George Floyd, George Floyd situation. Uh, you know, COVID has had people pent up for quite a quite a uh, long time, again, well over a year. Uh, people are looking to get out. Uh, and then the other part of it is that, you know, people that are traveling here from other parts of the country, um, you know, again, they're, they're, you know, I think they're coming here to kind of unwind a little bit, but, but I think they're also pushing the gambit of, of obeying the rules. Uh, and, you know, we've gone on social media, we've gone on the networks repeatedly, asking for people to, if you're going to come down here, if you're going to want to enjoy yourself, that's fine. But if you're going to push those limits and you're going to break the rules, then we have an obligation to intervene and stop it. 
Uh, and you know what we've seen is probably more of a, a frequency of, of those people actually coming forward and, and pushing the, those limits, uh, and uh, and again challenging our officers quite a bit. It's, it's been a different environment this year as opposed to last year. Yeah, Chief Clements, uh, when we say spring break, at least in the media, generally you're talking about college students coming down, going to the beach, drinking too much beer, uh, having a good time, looking to hook up maybe, uh, but nothing really malevolent. And I've got to say, looking at the, the way some of the incidents that have happened and the assaults on your officers, I mean, some serious stuff going on down there, dangerous, dangerous stuff. Yeah, Michael, it has been. And, and more so what we've seen this year is it, you know, when we go in and we, we try to go ahead and effectuate an arrest for someone that's, that's violating the law, what we've seen is the crowd then uh, encircle us, encircle our officers uh, in an attempt to be able to either you know, break the person free or to stop the, the, the arrest itself. Uh, it's been a challenge. We, we've seen that all over the country, but it actually started to materialize this year uh, during uh, the spring break period. But, uh, you know, again, that's why we've had to beef up our numbers. Uh, you know, it is an officer safety issue. Uh, you know, we are trying to do our job as best we can. And, you know, and we're, when we're stopped from doing that or when people try to stop us from doing that, it, it becomes a bigger issue at that point. Chief, yeah. this, the focus that we have right now, we meaning the public and the news and you and your officers, are crimes and how to stop them. And, and boy, we've seen people try to eat and run, create violence in restaurants. Uh, one of the Clevelander closed to avoid a stampede. Mm -hmm. But, but really, behind the scenes, there are a lot of kids here who are not committing crimes at all, who are here for a good time. We just saw some video of, I, I believe it was taken by our colleague Janine Stanwood earlier this week, of just a lot of kids spontaneously singing and dancing. Might it be that it, because there's such a focus on what might happen, and less of a focus on programming for people who are coming from elsewhere, who may not have a lot of money, who just want some free concerts, whatever. Is that something that maybe the beach can do to avoid a sort of predisposed expectation of crime? Uh, you know, that, that's something for, obviously, for uh, our commissioners to take up uh, with the mayor uh, and, and more important, our, our special events section coming in and seeing if we can find things to be able to, you know, to, to streamline that, that uh, energy. Uh, you know, our, our job is to police the streets and make sure that people understand, you know, what the rules are as it pertains to that. And, and you know, we've been very good with that. When we see, you know, people, they're just, they're just in the street and they're dancing and they're having fun, um, we're okay with that and, and we're, we're very tolerant of that. You know, obviously we have a concern about the social distancing aspect. Most people are not wearing masks down here. They're, they're really not. And, you know, and, and even though we've still tried to go ahead and pass out masks, it, it really is a, an effort that it's an uphill, it's an uphill battle uh, when that happens. But, um, uh, you know, I, I would leave that up to the, uh, the mayor and the commission to be able to determine whether or not that's the best uh, course of action yeah. to take. Uh, Chief Clements, uh, as you just said, as Lena just said, a lot of the people who are here on South Beach are only intent on having a good time. They don't want to break the law. On the other hand, your officers have seen, seized a lot of guns and made felony arrests. Give us some of the statistics. How many guns, how many arrests have you made? To date, since February the 3rd, we're over 1,000 arrests, uh, of which I believe 40% of them are for felonies. Uh, we've also seized an excess of 80 firearms. Uh, you know, so we, and, and I think last night alone we seized four. Uh, so people are coming down here, uh, you know, they're coming down here and they're arming themselves or they're armed before they get here if they're traveling by car. Uh, and it's, it's more of a situation where our officers really need to be uh, on their guard uh, when they are interacting with people that are on the street. 
Uh, we've had situations where you know people have run, and we've seen, and as they're running away, a firearm falls out of, out of their uh, out of their their, their grasp or, or their their waistline. Uh, so it, it is a a, a a phenomenon that we have not seen. I'm alarmed by the number of firearms that we have seized. Uh, and again, uh, it, I think it's it's more um, more of an issue that's going on right now across the board in society where we're seeing people arm themselves even more nowadays than we did before. Is there a, a constitutional way to address that prior to they and their them and their guns coming into a city? Is there is there a way on the front end to avoid the criminal elements so that this spring break can go on without that danger and to you and your officers? I don't think so. I, you know, and again, I think you alluded to earlier that that there are people that are down here that are really trying to enjoy uh, Miami Beach and, and South Florida, and, and they're they're abiding by the rules. But but there are those that intermix with them that aren't, and they have uh, really, for the most part, no desire uh, to to be able to uh, abide by the rules. And they they push that and they push those limits. Uh, more oftentimes than not, as well, when we're we're arresting people on the street for improper carry or carrying concealed firearm. Uh, they're coming from open carry states, uh, and so they're they're thinking that that now goes ahead and transcends or goes across those lines, and and that Florida is is in the same boat. And the reality of it is, is that there are restrictions associated with carrying a firearm in the state of Florida. And, and you know, again, the responsible thing for people that are doing that is to call up and find out what those restrictions are. We are talking with Miami Beach Police Chief Rick Clements, and we're going to be joined after the break by Mayor Dan Gelbert. Stay where you are. Talking about spring break emergency measures on Miami Beach with Miami Beach's police chief Rick Clements. And joining the conversation now, Miami Beach's Mayor Dan Gelber. Mayor, good morning. I know you also have had a long night, and we sure do appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Mayor Gelber. Thank you for having me. So I'm just going to go there and bring up the elephant in the room and what we hear from our viewers all the time. They're looking at this action on spring break on Miami Beach. They are in a time when we are in a national conversation over how uh, black people in different cities are treated by police, inequities in criminal justice. And now they are looking at this kind of action on spring break. Mayor, if you would address why the actions are being taken and on this event with these crowds, being a rowdy crowd is certainly not illegal, but the type of preparation uh, that was made for this particular event and those concerns that we're hearing? Well, listen, I, I think these are very important conversations to have nationally and everywhere, and we're having them uh, in our city as well. I was a, a federal prosecutor. I did civil rights prosecutions, including uh, arrestees uh, and, and how they were treated, so I'm pretty aware of policing. But I can tell you in our city, you just look at the videos, we're not, we're not targeting a, a group of people, we're targeting conduct. And the line is pretty bright for us, which is if, if you can't uh, keep streets safe, then you, you know, you're not doing your job. And, it, and, and that's what's guiding our actions. We are, you know, I'm very proud of our police force. We're one of the first, I think, in the region to have body cameras. Uh, we teach de-escalation. We do all the things that a modern progressive police force needs to do. And we're always looking to improve and listen. But... This and what you just look at the videos. If somebody, uh, uh, you know, shoots a, a weapon and and if 400 people start to sort of riot through the streets, we, we can't 
suspend law enforcement, and I don't think we're going to. So we're targeting conduct, and, I, and not just conduct, but misconduct. And I think that's very important. And by the way, um, you know, uh, the officers are, you know, we don't like these arrests because it endangers officers, it endangers arrestees, often many of whom are showing bad judgment because they're drunk or high. It, it endangers uh, bystanders. So we don't like doing this, but the only option we have right now is to make sure we can control our, our streets. We are, no community should endure the videos that uh, you see right now, and it's certainly not uh, what our city is gonna endure. So I feel like this is challenging, but I feel like we don't really have any other option. Yeah. Amir Gelber, a very pragmatic question to try to bring your city under control. Uh, you and Chief Clements have had to reach out to Coral Gables Police, I think maybe another police department. This is expensive. How much is this costing you? Well, I've reached out and we've reached out to many people. Um, uh, you know, one of my first calls was to the uh, Mayor Levine Cava because, frankly, this area, uh, you know, we, almost everybody we arrest and almost everybody who's a victim if there are victims uh, in some of the arrests, are out of towners. Uh, you know, less than about 10% of the arrestees are our residents, 90% are from other parts. And that's because we sort of police a playground uh, for people coming here because we are an economic resource for the county, if not the region. So my view is that our residents shouldn't be asked to endure and, and, and pay for all this themselves, when frankly, it's an important economic engine and she understood that. She immediately sent, I, I don't know if it's dozens or probably more than dozens at this point of extra police. I talked to Mayor Suarez, Carl Gables as well. We've had FHP in increased amounts as well. I spoke to the governor's chief of staff about it just yesterday. So we're, we're reaching out because we don't, we don't think this should be just a Miami Beach problem. We think it's, it's a challenge for the whole community. And chief, we really hope that we, yeah, we can get Yeah, there. for sure. Uh, Chief Clemens, there's a three o'clock emergency commission meeting today on the beach. What do you, what would you like to see your commission give you by way of maybe some more front end support, um, code enforcement, uh, things that would pave the way for a crackdown prior to crowds coming in and being able to take advantage, things like that. What do, what do you want from the commission today? Well, you know, again, the commission is going to come together this, uh, this afternoon. They're going to talk about, obviously, the, the emergency orders and what's going on in the city. Uh, and they'll discuss options, I guess, in the future. And that, that would be for them to do. But, you know, the most important thing that we can get from the commission is support. Uh, and they've been phenomenal. Uh, both the mayor and, and all the commissioners have been very supportive of the effort. They also understand that this hasn't been a, a two-day event for the men and women of the Miami Beach Police Department. This has been going on for five weeks now, and there's been a lot of sacrifices that have been made on, on uh, the officers end in order to be able to accommodate the need uh, to do our best to keep uh, the, uh, the community safe. Uh, just the events over uh, Thursday and Friday of this past week, and, and you know, we, were, we were pushed to our limits, but by virtue of uh, their training, their commitment, and more important, their tactics, uh, we were able to get through it. But I, I just couldn't take the chance uh, that we would let one more night go by uh, and, and something happened that, that would have resulted in, in, in a lot of people getting hurt. Uh, and uh, again, the mayor supported me. The, the commission has been supportive of that. Uh, and the men and women of Miami Beach Police Department went out and did a phenomenal job last night of holding it. Chief Rick Clements, we appreciate your time after a long night, a long several days. And Mayor Dan Gelber, always good to speak with you. Thanks very much. We'll be at the commission 
meeting virtually at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Great to have you. Thanks so Thanks, much. Thank you. And coming up, the ex-senator and the shill candidate both arrested this week in a Senate election scandal. Now, state Democratic leaders are calling for a new election. One of those leaders is going to join us next. A very big story this week, former state Senator Frank Artilas and a shill candidate he's accused of recruiting and then funding. They were both arrested this week and a bombshell election scandal Art broken in large part by my colleague and friend here, Glenna Milberg. Thank you, Artilas was all no comment as he bonded out of jail Thursday night. His arrest, the culmination of a four-month investigation, the state attorney's office launched the day after Local 10 found the two shill candidates that might have swayed South Florida state Senate elections. One of those phony candidates was arrested and charged as well. Prosecutors have evidence that Artilich recruited paid off auto parts dealer Alex Rodriguez to pose as a candidate and to dupe voters to siphon votes from the Democratic incumbent who, with whom he shared the same last name, Jose Javier Rodriguez. He ended up losing his seat by 32 votes to now state Senator Ileana Garcia. Though investigators say they found no evidence that she was involved with the scheme, there are now calls for her to resign and for a new election. State Senator Gary Farmer of Broward is one of those. He is the Democratic Minority Leader in the State Senate with us now live from Lighthouse Point. Senator, good morning. Good morning, Glenna. Good morning, Michael. Good to be with you. Senator, we are so glad you are. So this week on Friday, you, Manny Diaz, Senator Perry Thurston, uh, had a news conference. I watched it, I reported on it, and you demanded, asked, that Ileana Garcia voluntarily resign and that a new election be held. But that's not going to happen, is it? Well, it's, it's probably very unlikely. And uh, as you mentioned a minute ago, um, right now there is no evidence uh, that Senator Garcia was involved in this wrongdoing. But that doesn't change the fact uh, that these are extremely troubling, uh, not just allegations, but facts uh, that have been uh, uncovered by the state attorney's office. And it goes to the very heart uh, of our democratic process. And so, you know, we need to make sure that uh, Floridians can trust in the electoral process. And uh, the evidence is is overwhelming that uh, uh, there were wrongful acts, there were criminal acts com uh, committed in this election, and and those acts certainly had uh, an impact on the outcome of the election. We're talking about a race that was decided by 32 votes, and so you know I've seen on social media the last few days, uh, uh, you know, justice for JJR, um, and certainly my my former colleague Jose Javier Rodriguez uh, was was wronged in this endeavor. But this isn't really about justice for him. This is about justice uh, for the residents of Senate District 37. Okay, so uh, Sen sure Senator, uh, while yes. you're saying there, I, I'm listening to you, thinking everyone who is listening to you is thinking this, what happened, what's alleged to have happened, the shills we personally firsthand met is wrong. But what we've also learned is this has been going on for years, likely mm -hmm. for decades, that everybody knew that this was a way to game the system. Where you been? <laughs> well, you know, people have asked that this past week, and uh, the, the reality of the matter is our election laws uh, are woefully inadequate to handle this. Uh, even if uh, uh, we had uncovered 
the fact that uh, and what led to this, Glenna, was you finding out that uh, Alex Rodriguez didn't really reside in the address in the, at the district that he listed. That would not have knocked him off this ballot. Um, and, and to this point, no, uh, no state attorney or no uh, 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 law enforcement officials have done the kind of investigation that has happened in this case and uncovered evidence. We don't have subpoena power to find out about these monetary transactions. We don't have the ability to seize laptops and the things that happened uh, in this instance. And so we're very pleased that, that uh, State Attorney Rundle uh, has taken aggressive action to uncover this because you're right, Glenna. There are so many similarities here. Uh, there was a shill candidate in District uh, 39 uh, that shared a common address. You just reported on that recently. Um, up in uh, Senate District 9, there was a third-party candidate. Uh, uh, up in Gainesville, uh, three years ago, we had a third-party candidate who siphoned off uh, 2% of the vote, and the Democrat lost by 0.5%. So let me ask you a question on that. You're right, and we met shill candidates. They had no campaign. They had no platform. They did no campaigning. They did no door-knocking. How did 6,000-plus voters vote for a candidate that they legitimately knew nothing about? Isn't this election on them, in a way, no matter what? Uh, well, listen, I think... Um we hope that uh, our electorate is informed, and we do the best we can to inform them. Uh, it's it's sort of a Hobson's choice, though. You know, it wasn't something where we wanted to go mentioning Alex Rodriguez's name and and building his profile when one didn't exist. Uh, uh, but you're right; the the voters should have been a little bit more careful. In, in this case, it really mattered because of the same uh, last name, and so uh, I think there was a little confusion, a little voter uh, laziness. Um, and, and Glenna, what's really staggering uh, to learn for most uh, Floridians is that the act of fielding a, a shill or third party candidate in and of itself is not illegal. But what is illegal is to pay the filing fee for that candidate. What is illegal is for a, a, a party to pay uh, for advertising or political communications uh, for a third party candidate. And, and that's what we found here. That's what we've seen in other races. Up in Gainesville, we we traced uh, the third party candidate had to pay the cost of a, of a public records request he did. And the check used for payment of that of those expenses was the same account paying the Republican uh, campaign manager in that race. Uh, so, so there's evidence here of crossover with numerous Republican entities and PCs. And, and as I've been saying this past uh, few days, uh, this is like a Watergate deep throat moment. Uh, follow the money. Uh, uh, we, we urge, and I believe uh, State Attorney Rundle will follow the money. Yeah. Follow the money trail. Frank Artilles didn't get this cash he was taking out of a safe in his house out of thin air. It came from somewhere. And that, yeah. that well, warrant I, and Senator, that affidavit. Senator Farmer, in fact, excuse me, let me ask yeah. you about what the legislature could do to sort of shine a light on the dark money that Frank Artilis had and that other people have, because I know Glenna tried to follow the money. It winds up at a UPS, at a post office box in Atlanta. I mean, at mm -hmm. the moment, there is no way to find out the source of that money. I mean, maybe that'll come out at trial, but even that is a little doubtful. Yeah, I mean, we have uh, uh, election laws floating through the system right now in the Florida legislature, and uh, we can do things like ban or limit PC to PC money transfers. Uh, this is 
flat out money laundering. Money just gets moved through different uh, PCs and, and, and other entities. It's a Byzantine network of funding operations. Uh, we also could uh, pass a law that says you can't switch your party affiliation the day before you file. That's what happened in this case. Alex Rodriguez was a registered Republican. Frank Artilles had to send him several text messages to urge him to go and change his party affiliation. Uh, and so uh, these are things we can fix in the legislature. And we're calling on our Republican colleagues to join us in doing exactly that. Uh, they've been talking about election reform uh, uh, for months now, uh, and they, they point out uh, false election fraud. It led to a violent insurrection in our nation's capital. Uh, uh, and so let's do something meaningful. Let's not look at fake fraud. Let's not file bills that take away the right to vote by mail or make it harder to collect vote by mail ballots. Let's go after things like this that absolutely and directly affect the outcome of the election Senator, and really compromise the very integrity of we, our system. We, we understand the, the need for that kind of thing. There just doesn't seem to be much appetite on the on the part of Republican leaders. By the way, we like your clock. We heard the tolling there. Do not seem to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls maybe for Frank Artilis. We will find out. Thank, thank you very much. Thanks, Senator. Thank you. Thank you. Call it a challenge. Call it a crisis. A firsthand look at the surge of desperate people at the southern border. That's next. A dramatic and heartbreaking surge of desperate people at the southern border presents a complicated immigration issue becoming more urgent by the day. And it is becoming more politically charged by the day. Democrats excoriated former President Trump on his immigration policies, including separating children from their parents at the border. Now Republicans are blaming the Biden administration for its immigration policies, and South Florida members of Congress were among those who visited the border this week for a first-hand look. Among those, freshman Republican Rep Carlos Jimenez joining us now live. Congressman, good morning. Great to have you with us. Congressman, how are you? Good afternoon. Good afternoon, sorry. You know, when we spoke earlier this week at the airport, when you were fresh back from the border, you were saying that the Biden administration has incentivized people, which is why there was this search. Uh, the Biden administration is pointing the finger directly at the Trump administration for dismantling, in its words, uh, the components there for a humanitarian and safe legal immigration. Did you see that at the border? No, I think, look, uh, the, it's the rhetoric, it's the, uh, the policies, and, and then finally the legislation that's uh, being proposed. All of those are incentives, and that's why we have this surge of uh, immigrants at the border. I mean, before, uh, most of the immigrants uh, come seeking political asylum, and that's what they what they say. When uh, Under the Trump administration, they were kept in Mexico, and then they would have a hearing. Ninety percent of those uh, hearings would find that there was no basis for a political asylum. Therefore, 90 percent of the, the, uh, the immigrants would be sent home. Now, under the Biden administration, they come into the country, uh, they're released into the country. They do show up for their asylum hearing, but once the 90% is found not to, uh, to be eligible for political asylum, the judges then give them a couple of days or a couple of weeks to finish their business, because normally these asylum hearings take about two, two years, and then they don't show up. Actually, uh, we, we actually have seen video this week and only the last couple of days 
of families, people, adults being deported, turned around, sent back to Mexico. Right. It, it looks like the biggest change is that the unaccompanied minors are not being turned around, but are being allowed to come in. And there are just not enough staffing resources to accommodate. And, and that's where you get this. And I know crisis is, is a word that is sort of up in the air now, but it, but it is a crisis. <laughs> Of these no, you kids, still have, no, still have, no, you still have, Go you ahead. still have folks that in turn. But uh, uh, Article 42 is about the COVID-19 uh, crisis. That's that's the that's the difference. But it's now the, the catch and release policies of, of President Obama have been reinstated. The problem is, without a doubt, the unaccompanied children, and there are hundreds, yeah. if not thousands, of them that are crossing the border. A lot of them, it just breaks your heart when you see them at the Customs and Border Protection facilities. Uh, by themselves, as young as five, four years old, uh, um, you know, up to about 17, um, and and that's really, you know, heartbreaking. And they're crossing more and more. Uh, the Biden administration is not going to open up a, a convention center in Dallas uh, to handle up to uh, 3,000 of them. I don't know they're going to be opening up the homestead facility. I think it's going to be very politically charged for them to do that, seeing that the vice president of the United States. Uh, actually was outside of it when it was open and was demonstrating against it, it'd be very tough for the Biden administration, I think, to open it. But we'll see. Uh, can I just, for people listening, and I know you have been, when Homestead was open, you were inside, we were too, and the, the kids in cages that people are talking about are actually the border facilities where they are supposed to be moved out ASAP into the shelters like Homestead used to be, which for sure are not ideal places for kids, but that is not the kids in cages issue. That is actually a shelter for them mm -hmm. where they try to find their sponsors. I just wanted to yeah. put that out for people uh, who don't realize that. Yeah, kind of those, those cages, those pictures were actually taken during the Obama years. They, they weren't part of the Trump years. And so I didn't see any cages uh, when I was at Customs and Border Patrol. Uh, facility there in El Paso, Texas. Uh, they were inside a big room, uh, one for, for young girls and one for young for young boys. And uh, But again, there were hundreds of them. And then the facility in, um, in Homestead, they didn't have cages. It was, these were dorm settings. Um, the kids had uh, were being taught English. They had three square meals a day. They had, they had uh, recreation facilities. They were supervised. I think there was eight kids to one adult. About six kids, eight kids to, to a room that's kind of divided with a bathroom in the middle. And so there was nothing, like I said then when I was the mayor, I said there was nothing there that made me ashamed to be an American. Why people were demonstrating outside, I don't know. I actually spoke to the kids there, you know, I mean, I speak Spanish, so I spoke to them. And I said, hey, are they treating you fine? Are they treating you okay? And, and I was away from all of the officials. I mean, I went by myself. So that, that to, said, though, that, fine, right, yeah. but, but that said, that, that's not a place for, for these young people. And the issue is they are leaving violence, potential death. So there, what, what, do, what does the United States do right now to, to make them safe, safe harbor in a humanitarian way, and yet not look, overwhelm they, the border? Look, the, the truck is dangerous, okay? They are dealing with cartels, multinational cartels, that are charging somewhere between four and six thousand dollars each person. Chinese, the Chinese immigrants are coming through the border, and then you do have some. They're being charged thirty-five thousand dollars. So we estimate that the cartels are making somewhere around half a billion dollars a month with this uh, with this surge. Up to thirty percent of the young girls that are going and that are being trafficked get molested. 
And so the uh, the trek itself is super dangerous, um, and it, not only to to you know the youngsters, but also to the immigrants uh, themselves. Um, if they can't pay the four to six thousand dollars that uh, for transit, they uh, they have to pay it off when they get here, basically indentured service. And so we, we really need to disincentivize this truck. It's only helping the uh, these cartels. They use them for drug trafficking. They also use them to divert attention from the for Customs and Border Patrol. They send a surge through a certain area. Customs and Border Protection goes to that area. Then they, they go ahead and smuggle their drugs and other things through other areas of the border that are unprotected. Me, uh, you know, when I spoke to Customs and Border uh, Patrol uh, agents, they said they need more personnel they need the, the, the wall to be finished, that, those segments that were already funded and under construction, they need that to be finished. They need also enhanced technology to, to help them out. And I also feel that we need hundreds and hundreds more judges so that we can adjudicate well, these cases. We, we've much. needed, Congressman, we've needed more immigration judges for the last couple of years. I mean, this border surge is the biggest maybe ever but there have been other border surges. You know, Congressman, I, I just simply have to ask you, I think out of fairness, um, in 1966, Congress passed the Cuban Adjustment Act, and uh, for the next 51 years, uh, Cubans were given an incentive, as it were, and an ability, legal ability to leave Cuba, come to the United States, live legally, become citizens within a year. Uh, so a humane, I mean, you yourself, your family came. You were eight years old, I believe, when your family came from Cuba. So, you know, acting humanely is a good thing generally. It certainly was a good thing for you. Yeah, it is. But, you know, the, I mean, we were we were playing political. It was a political asylum. I mean, it was purely political asylum. Uh, you know, we were playing communism uh, in, in, in our case. It's a different story uh, with a lot of the migrants that are, um, are coming here now. It's, a lot of it is economic. A lot of them are, are, are trying to flee a very, very difficult, you know, situation at home. And I, and I you know, can, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm with them on that. But it, it has to be done legally. You know, when we came over here, when the Cubans came over here, they did it legally because they had a certain legal status. And so if we want to change it, let's go ahead and change it legally, all right? Uh, this is a country of laws, and we need to remain a country of laws. It can't be done in an illegal fashion. And you and your colleagues in South Florida, uh, Maria Salazar, Mario diaz Villart, will be very instrumental as these bills uh, go through Congress this week, and we invite you to keep in touch on that, and we so appreciate, appreciate your time, as always. Congressman thank Jimenez, thank you very much. Good going, I have to say, on voting for Dreamers, too. That was good. After a long, drawn-out process of picking a new police chief, Miami City leaders pulled a surprise move this week. Miami's new top cop is from Houston. Art Acevedo is going to Skype with us next. That is live. The Miami mayor and city manager this week picked a new police chief, but not one of the dozen or so applicants that they've been interviewing for weeks. They announced Houston's police chief would be Miami's new top law enforcer. And like all things Miami, <laughs> the decision is getting big applause and big raised eyebrows all at the same time. We have the big questions for him because that is what we do. So first, a warm South Florida welcome to Chief Art Acevedo joining us live right there via Skype. Hi, Chief. 
Chief, welcome. Or good afternoon for you all. Thanks for having me and happy to be on. We, we are delighted you are. Uh, Chief, uh, you've had a, a really meteoric uh, law enforcement career. You were in Los Angeles, Austin, Texas, Houston. Here you have a force of 6,000 sworn civilian personnel. You're a big star there. And now you're coming to Miami and 1,400 officers, a great city, but a much smaller police force. Why Miami? Why are you coming here? I mean, why not? Miami is the place where I started my uh, journey running away from communism, coming to this great land that gave us the greatest gift of all, which is freedom, uh, freedom to uh, to be free of oppression and the freedom to, to, to dream. Uh, Miami is a city of dreamers. It's a, a city of the uh, Peter Pan flights and the Liberty Tower, and it's a city of patriots, and I'm looking forward to coming in and hopefully taking it by storm. And, and when uh, Mayor Suarez and uh, Art Noriega called, and had the courage to, you know, assess what was available to them, and then look outward, um, and reached out. That that took political courage. And quite frankly, when you're in these big city jobs like this, uh, it's uh, you really can't uh, have a police chief uh, in a big city, out of respect for the current mayor and community, uh, be part of a process. And uh, 14 years as a police chief, I think that uh, my information and what I'm all about is out there for everyone to see. You know, let's talk about that process because you have, if you've done your homework, know that Miami is a very political city. Uh, sometimes we see it and sometimes we don't, and you'll be joining a very welcoming community in many respects, but also a community that really feels blindsided by the process. It, you know, with all due respect to you, you were not part of that blindsiding, but there was a big process with a lot of insiders and a lot of community input and then all of a sudden there was a surprise chief from somewhere else um are, are you mindful of that and what what do you do to sort of win over the community well i mean first of all you, you engage the community i really believe in community engagement and uh, at the end of the day while some may focus on the process i think at uh what people want results and i'm a result driven uh leader that uh, when you look at the fact that my mayor without a process here in Houston, just announced uh, my one of my executive assistant chiefs and Troy Finner to replace me without going for a search speaks to uh, the fact that mayors and the city managers that are result oriented uh, will have a process. But if the process doesn't give them what they're looking for, which I hope uh, is someone that will take the department uh, uh, at what Jorge and George Colina did, which was move it in the right direction, keep moving in that trajectory. Uh, when the results are done, and they get to know me and my heart and my history uh, of uh, fighting the communists, my father, my uncles that are political prisoners. Uh, they're going to say, hey, man, this is the right guy at the right time. And I hope to uh, prove that in, in short order when I get there. Yeah. Chief uh, Acevedo, uh, last summer after the death of George Floyd, cities across this country, uh, including Miami, uh, there were protests in the street. Black Lives Matter were out on the street. And certainly that was true in a big way in Houston, and you famously marched with Black Lives Matter. You knelt with them, you prayed with them, uh, and then their lead organizer says, uh, you shook their hands, walked out, and then sent your officers in to arrest some of the protesters. What's your take on that incident? Well, let's, let's just be clear. You know, when, when you're getting criticized by both extremes, people that think that, uh, that uh, you can't show empathy to a community that watched a man. I don't care what your political leanings are. I don't care what your uh, personal views are. But George Floyd should not have died in the manner that he died. 
uh, and our community was mourning. And Ashton Woods, uh, that is not the, he's a self-proclaimed leader of Black Lives Matter here. There are a lot of other leaders here in terms of these young activists. They needed to f hear from their police chief. They need to feel from their police chief. I need to hear from them. Uh, and most importantly, we need to keep the peace. But the fact that there's a big difference between First Amendment protected activity, which we will support, and criminal activity. When you cross that line, I've always said, do not confuse kindness for weakness. And the uh, close to 700 people that were arrested, they were arrested because they went beyond simply protesting. And we can't tolerate that in this city. And we won't tolerate that as a police chief when I get to Miami. Chief, you were, you've been very critical um, as reporters in Houston are looking at the crime rate, the homicide rate. Um, what I read your quotes to them, so this, I guess, technically is hearsay, but, um, but you've been very critical of prosecutors and judges who find a way to keep putting back on the streets chronic criminals. And certainly, I will say, as someone who's covered courts here, the, the laws and the process allow that to happen a significant amount here as well. Have you looked at that yet? And, and what do you do to reverse that tide? Yeah, I think that, look, uh, I'm the president of the Major City Chiefs Association, which is the 69 largest police departments in the country, the nine largest in, the, uh, in, in Canada, and uh, myself and the Conference of Mayors, which I'm really happy to see that uh, Mayor Suarez will be taking uh, on that role as the president of that conference. This is on our radar. This is something that we're talking about because these activist judges and these progressive judges that are confusing legitimate criminal justice reform with with the coddling of violent criminals, uh, they're, they're, they're really hurt, getting people hurt. And so we're going to continue these conversations and we're going to shed light on them. I, I actually, think I, I just want to, um, I'm sorry to interrupt. For the record, I just want to, to say that that's, I didn't take it to mean that way. I was not talking about what an activist judge or anything like that. Um, more so that there are witnesses who might come forward or there's evidence so that the case kind of falls through the cracks and isn't prosecuted. And then a, you know, a killer might be back on the street because a witness is too afraid to say anything. That, that, that I think, is more what we experience in South Florida. You know, I'm, I, I'm already falling in love with my community. I'm not even there yet. You nailed it on the head. Our ability as a law enforcement profession to actually solve crimes, uh, solve murders, when a murderer is going in one door, not the other, uh, causes great fear, not to mention the fact that when it's gang related and you let the shooter, the trigger pull that kills a gangster going one door and out the other, you just sentence them to death because within a week or two weeks or three weeks, they get killed and the cycle of violence continues. And so uh, it is a tremendous issue. And, and quite frankly, for those judges and the prosecutors who are doing that, they're wrong on the policy, they're wrong on the politics because communities of color and poor communities that are disproportionately impacted by violent crime want us to be just, want us to be fair, but most certainly they want to be safe above all else. And that's what we're going to try to uh, deliver. And that's what we're going to try to deliver across the country as police chiefs and mayors engage in this issue with prosecutors and the judiciary as well. Chief, we can't wait for you to get to Miami and get you in person here on This Week in South Florida. Thank you for your time this morning. Great to see oh, you, Chief. Well. Thanks. See you soon. Okay, hope so. We'll and be we'll right be back. right back. Yes, we will. <laughs> Thank you.
We thank you for being here with us. We love your feedback. Love to hear from you anytime. And remember, we're online 24-7 at Local10.com. And remember, as always, stay informed, get involved. Have a great Sunday.